This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of July 13th. 2015. On this week's show, we'll talk about the strange saga of DeAndre Jordan, the Clipper center who agreed to sign with Dallas, then changed his mind, and somehow the key moment of the whole thing was JJ Redick tweeting a car emoji. We'll be joined by Courtney Wynn to talk about Serena Williams's Wimbledon victory and whether America's 21-time Grand Slam winner gets enough love, respect, and admiration. And we'll discuss the best, newest, fanciest baseball statistic in all the land and whether we should care that Giancarlo Stanton hit a home run with an exit velocity of 119 miles per hour. Stefan Fatsis is out this week as he organizes a one-man ticker tape parade for the U.S. women's national team. Though I think maybe Abby Wambach's invitation will get lost in the mail. (laughs) Uh, Joining us in our New York studio this week, filling in for Stefan and making his third appearance on the podcast is Mike Scher, a producer and writer for The Office, the showrunner of Parks and Recreation, and the co-founder of the website Fire Joe Morgan, which means he is responsible for a bunch of great things that no longer exist. So thank you, and also, how dare you? Yeah, thank you for making me feel terrible about myself. Um, you did also co-create Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah, right? Which, Let's which focus exists. on that, yeah. And you're executive producing Aziz Ansari's new show for Netflix, and you co-host the sports podcast, The Podcast with Joe Poznanski, which folks can find in iTunes, although it doesn't come out that often. So maybe no, you should feel feel bad about that. Yeah, it's it's very it's a very sporadic and random, um, but uh, but it's fun. 
It should be the quarterly report with Joe Posnanski. <laughs> <laughs> Decrease expectations. That's, uh, you know, every comedy writer's you know, main strategy. Lower the, lower the ceiling. Lower the bar, <laughs> lower the ceiling. Uh, and with us, as always, it's Mike Pesca, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca. Perhaps um, starting a Colombian version of his podcast? Yes. After, with an, oh, after his recent vacation? With two O's. Not together. I, w- I just got back from Cartagena, where I was scouting the birthplace of Julio Tehran. I'm fascinated by people named after world capitals that aren't from the country <laughs> where the world capital is. I wasn't even in the capital of Colombia. I was in Cartagena or Cartagena. Um, hopefully we'll get more of this later in the show. Mm-hmm. There's, there's been some some discussion of whether it will be after bald. Um, <laughs> but in our uh, bonus segment for Slate Plus members, should I not have said that? Should I not reveal potential afterball topics? Yeah, well, it won't be an afterball topic unless you want to talk about the geography of Cartagena. (laughs) Quick question. You ready? Draw a line north from Cartagena, Colombia. What is the first U.S. state you hit? I'll give you this. It's in the central time zone, Cartagena. Go. Quick. Top of your head. Levine. Uh, Alabama. Sure. Mississippi. The answer is Maryland. Isn't that weird? Longitude is weird. (laughs) The way it bends. And that was Mike Pesca's afterball. That's it. Um, in our uh, bonus segment today for the Slate Plus members, we'll talk about sports and comedy and the HBO tennis mockumentary Seven Days in Hell, starring Mr. Scher's Brooklyn Nine-Nine compatriot, Andy Samberg. Uh, to hear this bonus segment and others like it on Hang Up and Listen, various other Slate shows, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus. You can get a free two-week trial at slate.com slash hangupplus. I also intend... Task if Detlef Shrimp was a guest star in Parks and Rec exclusively because he has a funny name, or whether you just knew that he had some untapped comedy potential. <laughs> but we can get into that later. Um, let us begin with DeAndre Jordan, the Clippers center best known for dunking a lot and missing free throws. Back on July 3rd, he agreed to a four-year, $80 million deal to leave the Clippers and sign with the Mavericks of Dallas. Reports indicated that he wanted the opportunity to expand his offensive game and that he was annoyed that point guard Chris Paul high-fived other players on the team but did not high-five him. That was actually reported uh, on ESPN by our friend Kevin Arnovitz. Jordan was wooed in large part by the Mavericks' Chandler Parsons, who went out to dinner with Jordan five nights in a row, which, as Mike uh, Pesca pointed out last week, is a lot of consecutive dinners (laughs) for any pair of people. Mm -hmm. Then early last week, reports emerged that Jordan was having second thoughts about going to Dallas, which led to an amazing emoji sequence Chandler Parsons tweeting a plane, uh, J.J. Redick a car, Blake Griffin an airplane, helicopter and car, Chris Paul and a, a banana and a boat, uh, <laughs> Clippers assistant Mike Woodson a guy swimming, Paul Pierce a blurry picture of a spaceship emoji rather than the actual spaceship emoji because he's a proven veteran who came around long before emoji existed. Right. Um, as everyone converged on Jordan's house, Griffin made jokes about barricading uh, the Clipper Center inside until he signed his deal, which is actually what what happened. Um, apparently, Jordan had already decided to stay in L.A., so he just ended up playing spades and eating dinner with uh, Griffin, Paul Pierce, and Reddick. Meanwhile, ESPN's uh, Chris Broussard reported that Mark Cuban, Maverick's owner, was driving around desperately trying to get Jordan's address, which Cuban denied via a messaging app that he owns called CyberDust, <laughs> ending every message by writing Dust On. Um, okay, that about covers it. And we can now have a conversation about all this. Um, Mike Schur, a comedian Joe Mandy, is that how you pronounce it? Yes. He pointed out on Twitter that this has the exact same arc as every romantic comedy, 
which I thought was perceptive. So yes. I wanted to ask you, is this a hacky romantic comedy or is there something original about it? And please give all your answers via Cyberdust. <laughs> The sad thing I find about the, the real story is that it's not as interesting as it seemed, right? The real story, uh, as told by J.J. Reddick on the Download Podcast on ESPN, was basically uh, that he DJ reached out to Doc and was like, I think I wanted, I think it changed my mind. Then they all went to his house and hung out, and then he signed the contract. <laughs> like it, it seemed like from what was happening that it was like the amazing race. It was like two groups of people were racing across the world for this prize, but really, a friend of mine pointed out, it, it seemed like The Amazing Race, but it was actually Big Brother. Um, and the, it's too bad, because for a while, it really seemed like he was like, it was like he was like the first person to get to his house wins. The In reality, it was like he he changed his mind. That's what happens. You know, Chandler Parsons said that he was unethical, but the reality is he was perfectly ethical. Like, he there's a moratorium in place that means you can't sign a contract. And if you can't sign a contract, then you can't be unethical. He just changed his mind. He, you know, Parsons could have said he was annoying or squirrely or something, but the system allows you to change your mind. And the irony is that the only person who was kind of unethical was Mark Cuban because Cuban tweeted or cyber dusted or whatever <laughs> you do on cyber dust that he was joining the team, which is illegal and tampering, and he was fined for it. So... <laughs> The, the, I, it seemed like the greatest story ever, and the reality of it is a guy changed his mind about where he wanted to work next year. Um, it was it made for high entertainment, but the isn't it more like it's a mad, 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 mad world? Yes, that's a better analogy. That's <laughs> sort of what it was. Yeah, yeah, with a very disappointing third act. That movie does not end well. <laughs> um, I would say that. First of all, this does prove that all we are is cyber dust in the wind. But to Schur's point about whether it was unethical or ethical, it exposed all these people talking about unwritten rules. And whenever there's a huge complaint about a violation of unwritten rules, a certain kind of person, the person who adheres to the unwritten rules, rails about unwritten rules. But every other person not invested in the system immediately says, well, why aren't they written? And they're not written because they don't want them to be rules. And therefore, he did not act unethically. Now, sure, there was a cascade effect where other free agents presumably signed with other teams. You know, I don't know that Robin Lopez would have signed with the Knicks if Dallas was in the market for a big man. But he's actually not going to get a richer contract with Dallas. And well, Dallas probably wouldn't have traded Tyson Chandler. That's right? the big thing. The, 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 big, the big cascade was that Dallas's entire concept of what they'd be as a team would have been reset and and they'd be a tanking team. Sorry, Dirk Nowitzki, but you know, you're la- he, maybe Dirk would have retired. So there'd be one team in the West who wouldn't be playing for it and therefore every other team in the West has incentive to get a little upset that DeAndre stayed with the Clippers because in a way the Clippers aren't going to be any better than last year, but it does make that uh, Dallas is going to be a little bit Worse, actually, every team in the West should be happy with the move because it takes Dallas away as a potential competitor. Yeah, and I mean, I don't want to go too far in saying um, that this was not an amusing story. I get the point. <laughs> I, I get the, I, I, I get the argument, but um, you're overlooking the fact that DeAndre Jordan told Mark Cuban that he uh, couldn't meet with him because he was on a date. Mm-hmm. Um, with which, Chandler Parsons, <laughs> <laughs> which is sort of the equivalent of I'm I'm washing my hair. That seemed uh, a little bit uh, like a like a hacky comedy subplot, um, and and the whole Chris Broussard, Mark Cuban thing, where ESPN reporter Broussard first tweets that Cuban is frantically driving around Dallas 
um, looking for DeAndre Jordan's house and texting everyone he can think of. Then cracks himself and says, actually, he's frantically driving around Houston because that's where DeAndre Jordan lives, making you question his, uh, his sourcing. Broussard later apologizes after uh, Cuban called him out saying, that is the dumbest shit I've ever heard. <laughs> um, and it also made me think that, you know, these these players have a like fairly good sense of humor. Like the um, kind of cascade of emojis and just following it on Twitter that day. It was like that was a great day and it made me like it made me like these players more. That was a great day. However, I would say that like any story that Mark Cuban is a part of, the funniest part of the story was Mark Cuban. <laughs> and the my favorite thing was that he was using Cyberdust, which is his new app or whatever messaging app. And how when he published, there are two amazing things about it. The first was that the only way anybody knew that he was using Cyberdust is because people were taking screenshots of Cyberdust <laughs> and posting them on Twitter, which is the irony of which is beautiful. And then also that at the end of every post on Cyberdust, he would sort of like try to transition from talking about the situation that happened with his players into talking about how great Cyberdust is. And he was like, it was like, so anyway, that's what happened, guys. And I'm really sorry, but we're going to put a championship team on the court next year. And by the way, how cool is this app? It is so, I love using it. It's really fun. You can really do a lot of stuff with it. Anyway, I'll talk to you later. No one is buying this, Mark Cuban. Like, no one, Cyberdust, he unintentionally killed Cyberdust by trying to use it to capitalize on this big story that in which he was came out the loser. He was trying to spin the DeAndre Jordan story into a positive for Cyberdust <laughs> to do what OJ Simpson did for Bruno Mag- Molly Magley, Bruno Magley shoes. Yeah, or it? Broncos or yes, what, yeah, yes. exactly. He's like, yeah. look, I, there's a there's a precedent. We take a sports figure. All press take, is good press. Yes. <laughs> we get a little bump. Um I actually looked at the Cyberdust website and the premise behind this app is that it's supposed to be very secure mm-hmm. and that you're not able to um, – it's like Snapchat for messaging, basically. And so he advertises that by just taking screenshots of the Cyberdust messages. It completely uh, obscured the the point of the app. And also on, the, fa- the fact that he's using Cyberdust to decry an ephemeral decision. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that he's using this app whose very purpose is to disintegrate in a matter of days to say, how dare DeAndre Jordan not stick to a long-term deal that was never written down. That also is an irony. It just really sounds like the kind of drug someone would take in a lesser William Gibson novel. <laughs> um, and that's why DeAndre Jordan will forever be known as the necromancer. <laughs> I also, the the strange kind of conversation coming out of this is all these people blaming the moratorium period, like, so you can agree in principle to a deal but not actually sign the contract for a week, which seems dumb, true, but it's like people don't change their minds in other venues of human experience. Um, I mean, <laughs> without a moratorium per- period, people will still make decisions and then change their minds. Like Billy Donovan, who's now with the Thunder, had a press conference announcing himself as the coach of the Orlando Magic and then decided several days later that he wasn't going to do that. It's not like, you know, there's not precedent for people changing their minds in basketball. It is funny how often in the world of sports we have to make an analogy to what's called the real world or human experience. Like, free agency is going to ruin the game. Hey, you could move to a different company. Oh, yeah, that's true. Like, we don't think of sports figures as actually being human beings with experiences that we could relate to until it's explicitly pointed out to us. Yeah, and also the, the those are the rules, right? The rules are there's this moratorium 
because they have to calculate the cap size for the next year and it takes a couple weeks. It sure seems like there's a, a way that they could get rid of it, but they haven't. And so they haven't. And that means that there's two weeks when people can agree to things. What's not supposed to happen is the details of deals leak out, right? But everyone's so, Mark Cuban is so excited to tell everybody that he uh, lured DJ away from the Clippers that he leaks it or someone in his camp leaks it. So it's not the, it's no one's fault. It's not DJ's fault that the deals leak. If the, if it, the system functioned the way it should, the deal never would have leaked. And if it never would have leaked, he could have changed his mind and no one would have known. He just would have signed with the Clippers again. But that's the system that they have in place. And I feel like until they change that, it also seems to me like they could just negotiate deals based on a percentage of the cap and then have them signed. I don't know why they can't do that. I don't know why they can't say, you know, okay, this is going to be a deal that's, you know, 15% of the cap or whatever. And then they set the cap two weeks later and it goes up or down by, you know, 800 grand. It feels like there's a way they could do it, but they haven't. And since they haven't, then he didn't do anything wrong. You guys don't, I mean, th- this has kind of been asked and answered a little bit, but was there any um, way that Jordan could have um, behaved more honorably in this? I mean, it seems like the mistake was just, um, you know, not saying, you know, I'll, th- I'll think about it for, you know, 30 more minutes or a few more hours or something, because it did screw the Mavericks. And I can understand if you're a Mavericks fan being incredibly pissed off. Well, his process certainly seems flawed. He doesn't seem that mature. And, you know, the consequence will be uh, he'll get, I guess, a bad reputation, certainly around the NBA. But that seems commensurate with the misdeed, which is human frailty. Yeah, and it's human frailty, and it it has to, at some level, it's just like, you know— people have buyer's remorse. That's what happens. You have, it when, you have it when you buy a house and you suddenly realize you change your mind that there's a reason why a lot of different things in life that are big decisions have these mandatory periods where you're allowed to change your mind. It's because it, you, sometimes you don't know that, you've cha- that you're going to change your mind until the moment you make a decision. And so, you know, I, I mean, yeah, it, was a, it wasn't point. great. It wasn't 100% A-plus work uh, by Jordan and his agents. But, like, that's so such is life. Yeah, and... Final final question. How much does um, high-fiving affect you guys' uh, workplace <laughs> mood? We've been actually high-fiving in the studio this whole time. Like a continuous every three seconds high-five. And I'm in a great mood. Well, actually, if you don't separate the hands, it's just called hand-holding above the head. <laughs> and that's what we've been doing. As if uh, a, a bride and groom are going to uh, come. It's like a freeze frame at the end of a sports movie. Yeah. <laughs> All right, with that mental image firmly ensconced. Let us move on to our next topic. On Saturday at Wimbledon, Serena Williams beat Spain's Garbina Muguruza, 6-4-6-4, to win her fourth major title in a row, a feat she first accomplished 12 years ago at age 21. The 33-year-old Williams now has 21 major titles, four more than Roger Federer's men's open-era record, and third all-time among women behind Steffi Graf's 22 and Margaret Court's 24. In September at the U.S. Open, she'll look to tie Graf's mark and also to match Steffi's feat of winning the calendar year Grand Slam, which she pulled off in 1988. Serena's amazing accomplishments occasioned all sorts of tributes over the weekend, but in a lot of those stories, there's kind of a lament that she is not more respected or beloved, with the BBC's Tom Fordyce writing... For instance, that Serena should be cherished like Roger Federer. But if you listen to the crowds at Wimbledon, it's pretty clear that she is not at that level. 
Joining us now from England is Courtney Wynn, who wrote about Wimbledon for Sports Illustrated and is about to start a new job as a writer for the Women's Tennis Association. She also talks about tennis with our friend Ben Rothenberg on the podcast No Challenges Remaining, which you can find in iTunes so long as you spell it correctly. (laughs) Hello, Courtney. Hello, and how are you guys? Doing great. Um, I want to start by, um, well, let's talk about both Serena's dominance and how sports fans in the world react to it. Um, But first, just her play over the last year. This time last year, she had not even made it to the quarterfinals in the season's first three Grand Slams. So, Courtney, what changed over the last four majors to make it so that seems like so far in the past and she now seems just absolutely invincible? I mean, so much of it, I think, is just a, a rededication on some level from, from Serena Williams. I mean, she is, you know, she's up there next month. She turns 34 years old. The body, as Roger Federer will tell you, uh, you just kind of don't know what exactly it's going to do uh, on any given day. And I think that last year, through the first three majors, she had just kind of bad runs at majors at the time when she needed her body to be at its best. It kind of failed her at the Australian Open last year. She got blown off the court by Muguruza at the French Open. And then just just a very obviously curious end to her Wimbledon where she, she just didn't play great and had that very uh, scary wobble effectively uh, in her doubles match. And ever since then, you almost wonder if that all kind of took the pressure off of her a little bit, that she had been dominating the women's tour. Everybody was expecting her to win, and she kind of didn't become the underdog because I don't think Serena Williams is ever going to be an underdog. But she kind of went into the U.S. Open feeling like maybe there was something to prove um, and maybe a little bit more under the radar. Okay, and before we um, just get started about how she's perceived, can you just tell us um, being at Wimbledon, how would you characterize the fan response to her? Obviously, she was not the crowd favorite in her match against um, Heather Watson, who is the native countrywoman, but just like throughout the tournament and compare it to, say, what um, the response was to Federer. Well, I think it's pretty unfair to compare anyone to the response that Federer gets. I mean, with Serena, it's it's outside of the, the state. It's really polite applause. There is almost, it feels like a begrudging respect for what she is able to do. And despite the fact that she is the best grass court player um, in the world on the women's side right now, um, you know, they, they almost kind of don't appreciate that game style. They, the aces come too quickly. The rallies are kept too short because she can dominate through the rally so quickly that sometimes in her matches there isn't much to applaud because there isn't a ton of, of, of long, you know, dramatic rallying going back and forth. And this crowd has always been for the younger ingenue. I mean, we saw it last year with Eugenie Bouchard against Petra Kvitova. They really were behind Bouchard the year before that. Sabina Lisicki, uh, a very, you know, smiley blonde woman from Germany against Marion Bartoli. The crowd was behind them. So it's, it's kind of, unfortunately for Serena, kind of the same story. Not unlike a Novak Djokovic, actually, in, in a, a little bit, in terms of a, I'm always surprised that she doesn't get the ovation that she deserves. Well, I think Bartoli, that's a good example because she does. Okay, first of all, let's posit this. There are a thousand explanations as to why this could be, and some of it could be, you know, our perception, but I, I sense it too. She's not uh, as beloved as one of uh, the male greats. I'll put forward a couple theories. One, let's take the Bartoli example. Serena's not, you know, cutie pie. Serena's not the ingenue. It's not that she's not, you know, young and cute and pert, not just that. It's that I think she kind of, in a 
way dumb dumb play the game of uh, having a sugar company named after her or whatever Sharapova does. But also, I think there's maybe something like we learn to love the men through grueling matches, seven-day matches, for instance, and because of the structure of the women's game, but especially, be, you know, three sets, but because of the structure of the Serena's dominance, we don't have these moments where she gutted it out and threw up on the court, or at least we remember them. We take her for granted, and I think you add it all up, and perhaps she's under, and she's American, right? So why is the French Open or the, or Wimbledon crowd going to rally to her? So you add it all up, and it's a little underappreciated, and yet it doesn't matter, I don't think. I don't think it bothers her. I hope it doesn't bother her. She's ha- She has all the real accomplishments. She has the resume. I mean, yeah, I mean, she has all of the accomplishments. And I think that one other thing, too, that, that you kind of differentiate with Serena is that you talk to a lot of people, like Andy Roddick was saying it over the weekend, you know, because people were asking him, do you think that we really know the real Serena, that, that you know, the Serena in press conferences and interviews that she lets, you know, the fan in, she lets reporters in. And he's known her since he was, you know, eight years old. And he said, no, probably not. I mean, she's very guarded. And that plays into it a little bit as well. I mean, when you compare her to, again, we keep using Federer as as the measuring stick. But, um, you know, he's very gracious with press. He seems pretty open and unguarded for the most part. And with Serena, you kind of don't really know what you're getting all the time. So that might play a little bit into, you know, whether or not she can get the fans on her side. But remember, Every tennis court across the globe, everyone roots for the underdog. And like I said, Serena's never the underdog. She just never is. Um, One thing that I've thought about is, um, you know, just other women's sports. So when the UConn women dominate the opposition, there's all this hand-wringing and consternation about, is it bad for women's sports? And you don't really hear that when a Jordan Spieth or Tiger Woods or Roger Federer dominates um, his sport, um, there's not a presumption that it's because the competition is bad. And with Serena and Chris Everett, Courtney, I thought made a really interesting comment. She said, I've never seen a great champion who when she plays bad, her level is worse than Serena's. And I've also never seen a champion whose level is better when she's playing at her best. And so I think that might factor into it, this notion that Serena doesn't have to play her best to win these tournaments and she doesn't get credit for just playing amazing on the on the important points or just having this kind of unbelievable like will and you know winning three majors after she had match points against her um and so i I think some of that has to do with our attitudes towards dominant women in sports oh i totally agree and it's this discussion that I have multiple times with, with my colleagues because, yeah, when Roger Federer was out destroying the tour and absolutely reigning it in what was, when we look back on it, a very weak era, he was celebrated. He was celebrated as being incredible, amazing. He's doing things we've never seen before. He's the most aesthetically you know, gifted uh, tennis player we've ever seen with his stroke production and all that. And then right now, I mean, as we're living through this incredible era of dominance, not just the last four majors for Serena, but since 2012, since she won that Wimbledon after you know, nearly you know, dying because of a, a pulmonary embolism, she's now won eight majors back at number one. I mean, we can reel off her CV uh, as many times as we want, but it's still just treated as though, well, that's because everybody else on the tour sucks. 
because she's won, you know, 17 consecutive matches against the number two player in the world, Maria Sharapova, or all of these other players like uh, Caroline Wozniacki or Petra Kvitova, they can't challenge her. Victoria Azarenka, so close, but still so far. Um, and it's, it's seen as, for some reason, and, I, and every time I ask somebody to explain it to me, they never can, um, but it's for some reason somehow a weakness um, on the women's side, and, and it's an incredibly unfair critique because it takes away from what Serena is actually doing. So what does it take? Here's my question. Like, you know, you see, you saw it with, like, Agassi, right? Agassi exploded onto the scene, then he faded, and then he clawed his way back. And when he came back, he was sort of embraced in a different way by crowds and, you know, the sort of, like, bowing to all four sides of the crowd at the at the U.S. Open, that kind of thing, and the people loving him. But Serena's done all this stuff, right? She's been number one six different times. So she's had these moments where she's dominated and then she's faded a little bit because of injury or something and she's clawed her way back. And she also had a serious health scare and then she clawed her way back and she's won 36 Grand Slam titles, including doubles titles and mixed doubles titles. She's done everything you can possibly do in every dimension to be embraced. She's, uh, my question is like, Short of short of retiring and going on what amounts to like a long like announcing like okay this is my final year, it feels like maybe then people would would sort of like embrace her in that way. Is that the only thing that's going to make people clap for her as loudly as they should be clapping? I mean, I do wonder whether or not, and and this is my hope, is that as she charges towards the U.S. Open to complete uh, the the calendar Grand Slam, that this will be Serena Williams's coronation. That this will be the opportunity for fans to really understand what, what they're watching right now and for her to receive that sort of um, accolade, that Agassiz-esque embrace. Because you're totally right, like as she's come back and as she's gone from slumping to dominating, from slumping to dominating, right now she's in this phase where, you know, there's a lot of things that Serena Williams has done on court that uh, have not been great. You know, she's a very complicated champion in that way, you know, when you're threatening lines judges and, you know, threatening other players and, you know, cursing under your breath, all of these sorts of things that maybe have not endeared her to uh, a tennis crowd, but ironically have probably made her more iconic and bigger than the sport. So it kind of goes both ways. But I think that right now she is in kind of this ambassador phase. You know, when you see her, when you talk to her, I think uh, last week somebody was trying to get her thoughts on grunting once again because the Brits love talking about grunting. Um, and she said, you know what, I'm not about controversy. I'm not going there. I'd rather take an ice bath. Like, she's shutting all of that down. She's not wading into it. So she is trying to be kind of this revamped, um, well, she's revamping her image in a lot of ways, and uh, maybe that is enough to kind of push things over the edge. But I think that in New York, on home soil, with everything on the line, um, she is going to get the reception she deserves. And by the way, that uh, comportment on the court, talk about the biggest double standard of everything <laughs> you've raised. You know, Ellie Nastasi, John Macro, we yeah. love those guys. Uh, let's also note that uh, the racial aspect comes into play, I think, exactly when you were talking about her being guarded. I think public court and Richard Williams as the uh, quixotic uh, figure, Svengali figure behind her, all of that contributes to her being guarded and perhaps not being embraced. But, you know, it's really subjective. On the objective front, can you assess why her greatness compares to the greatness of several of these men's champions, yet it's longer? So why has the window been longer for her? She's had her battles with health, but they aren't 
th- th- there are the embolism. There's, you know, stepping on glass in a German restaurant or whatever that story was. Doesn't seem like it's huge rotator cuff problems. Is it because the women play fewer sets? How often would that even come into play? You know, how often is Nadal pressed to five sets, for instance, over the course of the year? Is that why his body has broken down quicker than uh, Serena's has? I think there's, that's definitely part of it. You talk about game style. I mean, so many people, again, we keep bringing him up, but people talk about Roger Federer and his longevity, and one of the reasons why he's able to play for as long as he has and still be the number two player in the world is because his, his game style just doesn't put a ton of stress on his body. Right. Now, when you're, when you're Serena Williams and you can hit that serve 125, cold um, and you can pound your forehand and you can pound your backhand at a level that no few other players can can hit you're keeping the rallies pretty darn short I mean when she starts to get into grinding situations that's when her body begins to fail her and that's why the French Open has always been her biggest challenge of all the four majors so I think game style does come into it I think also let's be honest I mean Serena Williams has completely checked out of her tennis career multiple times um, that it hasn't always been the priority, that she hasn't um, been kind of a full professional day in, day out every single uh, year of her career. And that's going to help. That, that definitely helps her longevity. I mean, she is fitter now than she has ever been in her life, um, and it's incredible. Two final points from me. Um, if you compare Serena to her sister Venus, um, I think because Venus has always, I think, comported herself um, with, you know, what's perceived to be like so well. And so she's seen as being so elegant and g- kind of hasn't, um, had the same sort of controversies. She has, I think, become like sort of the grand dame of tennis in a way that Serena hasn't. She's a little older. She had the, um, autoimmune disorder that she's come back from. And so I think if you compare those two sisters, then I, I think you see some interesting, contrast there. And it also, you know, my my final thing is that um, it's Serena's physical form, I think, is a reason um, why she hasn't been embraced by a lot of people. Like, you know, even conceding that, you know, the standard for internet comments is remarkably <laughs> low. Like, if you look at any comments on a story about Serena, just like the sort of horrible, like misogynistic things that you'll hear about her musculature and basically used to discredit her achievements, basically saying it's unfair because she's so much bigger. And again, you hear this in a lot of different women's sports. And I think that that's, you know, a reason why her success is discredited in in some corners, just the idea that she's, quote unquote, physically superior. And so why should you be impressed? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a lot to that. I mean, whenever you try to unpack the uh, kind of the, the crowd or fan or pundit reaction to Serena Williams, there's so much coded language that's, that gets involved, and there's so many different aspects going on. And Serena, obviously, as I mentioned before, hasn't helped herself with respect to some of the things that she's done on court that have not been particularly uh, well-received. But, um, yeah, I, I think the physicality of, of her game, of her body, it, it informs how people perceive her, and, and especially when you were bringing up Venus Williams, everybody likes to define, you know, uh, against an other. 
So if you have those two sisters going up through the tour together, and you have the elegant, tall, slender Venus Williams, who was a a major champion for equal prize money, um, really was taken under Billie Jean King's wing, all of these sorts of things. Then you had Serena, who her own father said, you know, she's she's the pugnacious one. She's she's the fighter. She's, you know, she's the one that's going to come through like a puma and just take over this tour. Um, It's hard to get away from kind of just differentiating the, the visuals away from what you actually think of them, because actually it's not, they're not that different in that way, you know, in terms of their personalities. Uh, Venus can be just as difficult as Serena sometimes. Serena can be far more gracious than Venus is sometimes. But, you know, those, uh, those boxes have already been built, and they've been placed uh, firmly in them, and it's hard to break out. It is true. You could do a uh, doctoral dissertation on the semiotics of Serena William discussion or the more Occam's razory explanation is uh, hate is going to hate. Hate is going to (laughs) hate. I do agree with you, though, Courtney. I think that this summer and in New York, she'll get a huge amount of attention. And if she, um, you know, as she advances in New York, the crowds will be on her side cheering lustily as New Yorkers do. Most definitely. I mean, we saw that at Indian Wells when uh, she returned after her long, uh, her long boycott. And the ovation, the standing ovation the crowd gave her when she came back on court uh, moved her to tears. And, and I expect to see very similar scenes uh, in New York this summer. Thank you, Courtney. Um, and we'll be uh, watching and, uh, and following you. Thank you very much, guys. All right. Time for our last segment. And it has now been seven years, remarkably, since the website Fire Joe Morgan ceased to exist, and Mike Schur writing under the nom de plume, Ken Tremendous stopped naming and shaming writers who mocked people who cared about baseball statistics by saying they lived in their mother's basements. <laughs> has it really been seven years? I guess it has, yeah. <laughs> Jeez Louise. Um, I want to start by noting that Joe Morgan, uh, the sabermetrics-hating ESPN announcer, has not been on the air since 2010. And fans also now like celebrate the achievements of... Theo Epstein, other general managers, as much as they do power hitters. So before we get into the the nitty-gritty discussion about where stats have gone, um, Mike, I want to ask you, uh, Mike, sure. Do you feel like the nerds have won? Like, were your, were your goals realized? I think to a large extent the nerds have won, or at least are winning. I mean, I say that knowing that last night Harold Reynolds was calling the game on, on ESPN Harold Reynolds, the trade of Joe Morgan for Harold Reynolds is a is a net loss for baseball fans, I think. Um, <laughs> just, but, just as uh, they would have been a second baseman. Actually, pretty much <laughs> right. the same exact Almost decline. the same exact Reynolds ratio. Is good. He's yeah. fine. No Hall of Famer. Uh, so, so, but that, that being said, you know, the amount of information and the quality of the information that you get when you watch baseball on television now is so much greater than it was uh, seven years ago, 10 years ago, certainly 15, 20 years ago. Uh, you know, you get stats like wins above replacement instead of batting average. You get stats like OPS, even sometimes OPS plus, you know, which is, you know, league-adjusted, park-adjusted, era-adjusted OPS instead of things like he is three for six with runners in scoring position against, you know, the Phillies in his career, which is six at-bats over five years or whatever. You know, like you get... They're, they're doing such a better job of educating you. And, and this goes to, this speaks to the much larger point about Major League Baseball and how good they have been at providing information for fans, starting with pitch FX a while ago, and now they have hit FX, they have, they have all this exit velocity stuff that we're going to talk about. 
they've basically done this massive data dump on the world and said, like, we are going to shoot everything with a bunch of cameras. We're going to measure everything and we're going to provide it to you so that you can come to conclusions about about the game and about the players. And it's amazing. And it's so fun. And if you're interested in this stuff, it makes the experience of like engaging with baseball so much more fun. I agree with that. You know, I was thinking about this. The internet led the way. And on internet sites, the, this this data isn't even... There's They won't even tell you what runners in scoring position <laughs> is. And that's fine. It's kind of a meaningless stat. Um, on TV, it's it's in between. They'll definitely give you all the information. Good thing about baseball is there's a lot of time to kill. So they yeah. can give you all the information. Radio is a land of redoubt. And I think that's appropriate in some ways. It makes sense. I listen to a lot of baseball... Uh, re, uh, baseball on the radio and this is the place where not only will you just have maybe depending on the announcer the astros for instance have gone crazy with uh, stats on the radio and it's really good the rays announcers are good i listen to serious radio and i go throughout the stations and honestly if it's the i don't know exactly how i guess the home team announcing team but when it's the astros i stay on them just because i like their announcing team but a lot of the places on radio first of all it's an older audience second of all the announcers on radio tend to hang around for a long time because there's an established factor and oftentimes it's you know old players but third of all you know think about how old the medium itself is and so you really don't find an embrace of this and the biggest thing is i've been listening to radio this summer and this is very true on the red sox radio decrying the effects of the shift like this is like i know that it's effective but man it's changed the game wait a minute you can't say (laughs) i know it's effective but so i hear this all the time and another big thing is like why is david ortiz not hitting man it's the strike zone this strike zone has just changed and like just moaning the old ways. So there are still pockets of media out there where you get the old flavor of, uh, you know, let's parntar up, boys, and uh, take one for the team. <laughs> no pepper. <laughs> the interesting thing here is that it seemed like there was a trend across all sports of all of this data and all of the kind of research around it going private and becoming proprietary. Um, you definitely seen that in the NBA. And in baseball, a lot of the best kind of just like internet writers were hired by teams. Um, but this like StatCast stuff, PitchFX, um, the stuff you were alluding to, um, Mike, has kind of been opened up in this really great way by Major League Baseball, and they should be praised for it. There's this site, Baseball Savant, um, run by uh, Darren Willman. He was profiled in Rolling Stone by Eric Malinowski. Now, the nerds have definitely won when Darren Willman of BaseballSavant.com is in uh, Rolling Stone. <laughs> um, uh, but he gets all of this data from MLB. It's open, and he presents it to readers in a way that you can you know, digest it, parse it, make reports out of it. Um, and so that's kind of how this exit velocity stuff has um, gone out to the masses. It's not being hoarded by clubs. So we're able to look at it. People from Fangraphs or other sites are able to write articles about it. And it's very nice and, and countered, uh, I think, what we thought the trends were, were looking like. Yeah. Baseball is just light years ahead of the other leagues when it comes to the stuff, when it comes to like n- like collecting the data. And, and granted, there's more data in baseball, right? That's part of what makes it so great is baseball has, for its entire history, been a little bit mysterious. Like there's umpires making subjective calls on every pitch. And you're watching the games or listening to the games, and it's like, oh, that's a borderline strike. Now we actually know whether it's a strike or not. And that's bad for umpires because they look, they look a little like they're a little embarrassed every game. 
um, in real time. But it's good for fans, it's good for players, and it's good that baseball now has replays so that at least sometimes when they blow a call, you know, Dom Denkinger wouldn't have happened in, in the current game. And that's good for fans and that's good for teams because you want the calls to be right. But, it's and good it's, for Denkingers. Yeah, it's good for all Denkingers everywhere. But the other thing is, like, you know, the part of the mystery of baseball, it, it, part of some mysteries in baseball are wonderful, right? It's like, how can someone do that? That kind of mystery is wonderful, and, and the athleticism is the mysterious and wonderful. What's not wonderful um, to remain mystery or a mystery is, are things like, you know, a guy comes up and his team is down by two, and there's runners on second and third in the ninth inning with two outs and two strikes, and he hits a home run. And you have wondered your whole life, how how close were they to losing? And now you know. You know exactly how close they were. You can go to, you know, Brooks Baseball or Fangraphs or whatever, and you can look at the win percentage added of that exact thing and say, like, oh, my God, they were 6% to win that game, and they went, they jumped to 100%. That's, that's 94% of a win that that one player did in that one thing. That stuff is great. And uh, all of the people who are still, you know, complaining that it takes all the fun out of the game or that the nerds are winning or blah, blah, blah. They don't, you don't have to go to those sites. <laughs> Just don't go to the site. Just watch baseball your own old way. And the rest of us get to watch baseball in both that way and the new way. And everybody wins. And so I, I, uh, one of the many things that baseball has gotten right, and they've actually gotten a lot right in the last 20 years, is that they have collected this data and they're giving it to us to look at. Two points. One, I think that there is still more proprietary data with uh, within individual teams as there is in any other sport. So I think the Atlanta Braves have as much data that no one else in the league has as do the Atlanta Hawks. It's just that there's also so much more open and free data and there's so much raw material. You know, part of the proprietary stuff is what you do with the raw material. So exit velocity, let's talk about it. To me, it's good. It's interesting, but it can be replicated in a lot of stats that are out there, freely available exit velocities out there. But, you know, line drive rate, which was a cruder measure of how hard you're hitting the ball. So that's what exit velocity is. What I don't get, there has literally been nothing that's ever been explained to me, not just in baseball, but, but anywhere else, that ruined the mystery of anything from <laughs> down to Ray Manzarek saying, oh, here's how I got light my fire. It's just this part of Bach and this part of Brahms to J.D. Martinez talking about, here's why I'm hitting, you know, 20-something home runs. I adjusted my swing after watching some uh, video of other power hitters to whatever, exit velocity. So I'm not part of that camp. And I don't think that, I, I, I think that people, I, I, I doubt the sincerity of people who say that the mystery has been ruined. I think something else is going on there. Like, I I, I don't understand these stats. Or, or they're I'm not scared. Yeah, yet. they're just kind of scared. Like, a lot of information can be scary, especially with something like baseball, where you grow up, and you learn it in a certain way, you learn it from your dad or mom or grandparents or whatever, and you learn it in a certain way. And when someone comes along and tells you that it's actually much more understandable than you were maybe taught, you just don't want to believe it. And yeah. and, and it's also math, and math scares people. <laughs> also, we connect to people, and maybe there are players who we like, a person likes because he's gruff or hard playing or whatever that gritty thing is. And a lot of these stats show that actually it's the guy who maybe seem a little more chalant, who's not the guy you like, who's a guy taking walks, which isn't as exciting, and you personally don't like it. So you, you kind of retroactively retrofit your opinions about statistics, about who they say is a good player and who they say is a bad player, and you're in in the person. Well, here's the amazing thing. I'll say this. I, you know, while Fire Joe Morgan was up and running, 
very frequently because it was around the right time, we wrote about either Adam Dunn or Juan Pierre, right? Juan Pierre, in our mind, was wildly overrated. Ned Coletti was constantly talking about how valuable Juan Pierre is. Juan Pierre made more outs than any hitter uh, in baseball for many years in a row or was in the top five. And meanwhile, Adam Dunn, who struck out all the time, Either he either was a three-tour outcome guy, right? He hit a home run, he struck out, or he walked. And we would talk all the time about how undervalued Adam Dunn is compared to how people perceive him. And that was, I mean, I was never more sure of anything in my entire life than that Adam Dunn was a more valuable player than Juan Pierre. And when they both uh, retired, it turned out, an article was written, I think in Baseball Perspectives, that essentially in terms of wins above replacement, they were ideal. Identical. It was literally like 16.6 or something for their careers. And it's because Juan Pierre played defense and Adam Dunn. Adam Dunn was a miserable defender. Juan Pierre was actually a pretty good defender. He didn't have the strongest arm, but he covered a lot of ground. He was a better base runner, blah, 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 blah. It ended up being that they were actually identical. So we've come so far in terms of analytics and baseball that the people like me who were kind of snootily arguing that the old guard was wrong about everything have now been proven wrong about at least some things, which I think is great. Like, that's that's progress. Will the Eckstein correction be coming soon? (laughs) Never. You will never hear me apologize for David Eckstein. The thing that I find funny about exit velocity and people who complain that it's uh, just another number and why are we talking about RBIs is that you can totally imagine a universe in which the speed of the ball off the bat, like which we knew that like 100 years ago, Mm -hmm. um, because we know the speed at which a pitcher throws. And so couldn't you imagine like a crusty old baseball guy being like, all I care about is Giancarlo Stanton's, you know, exit velocity being 120 miles per hour. Why are they trying to tell me about these newfangled numbers? <laughs> um, it means it's just he like, hits the ball hard. Yeah. That's what it means. That's baseball. He hits it hard. All we used to have was RBIs and exit velocity, and that was <laughs> and that was all we needed. But that's why I think that it's so cool. It's like if you look at the leaderboard of like home runs by exit velocity on the hit tracker tool and they have like uh which is associated with espn hit tracker online um and you just go through and like click on the videos of every home run it is incredibly fun to look at like the top 10 hardest hit home runs of the year and you're like oh my god that was a really hard hit home run um and it just seems like something so fundamental and something that you know we always should have known, and now we do, and that's great. Yeah, and it's also something that is, it sort of dovetails with the way people just watch the game, right? It's like you can tell that Giancarlo Stanton hits hard home run balls and just with your eyes, and then when you get it confirmed with a statistic, it sort of like it matches your perception. The harder ones to swallow for people are the ones where it's like, well, the difference between a pitcher with a 129 whip and a 110 whip is actually pretty substantial, and it makes for the difference between like an all-star starter and a sort of mid-rotation guy. That's hard because you're not calculating that that fifth of an extra base runner every inning that the guy's giving up, and those are the ones that kind of people get more lost in. But exit velocity is just like, yeah, that was a hard line drive. Like Mookie Betts had a 110-mile-an-hour line drive the other night into the gap, and when it left the bat, it was like, wow, that was a hard-hit ball, and now you get to kind of prove it, and that's really enjoyable. And uh, one one last thing is that the, the cool thing about knowing this is that there's an article in the New York Times by Tim Rohan where he talked about how teams are actually using this 
um, stuff, exit velocity data to decide, like, should I keep Lucas Duda or Ike Davis? And so now as fans, if you want to know, like, what, um, you know, the personnel department of your favorite team is thinking about it, you now have the data so you can kind of make those comparisons yourself. And again, that's just a great thing about Major League Baseball making this data available. And so even if you don't have, like you said, Pesca, you know, we don't know all the research that every team is doing with this data. You at least have the same kind of fundamental like ones and zeros that all the the teams do. And in basketball and football, that's just not really the case. Although before exit velocity, were there a lot of scouts saying, I'm going to keep the guy who hits it less hard? <laughs> I think hitting it it's harder changed. has long been It's changed prized. everything. Yeah. It's changed everything. All right, let's... But uh, he hits d- it less hard the right way. <laughs> <laughs> who are the, the lowest exit velocities are like Billy Hamilton, Juan Pierre. Uchiro, Juan Pierre. <laughs> Juan Pierre. Um, all right, now it's time for after balls. You know how to, you know how to Sam get- Fold was the other the one that... There was some video of Sam Fold. He had the lowest exit velocity. It was the saddest hit. It was like a it was like a sad dribbler up the first baseline, and he got a single out of it. Yeah. That that the irony was he he beat it out. If you get if you hit get, get speed, I think they should factor in. There should be a separate stat for exit velocity plus hit by pitch. So Biggio and Baylor's numbers will spike. All right, after balls, uh, the greatest thing ever written on the website Fire Joe Morgan. I think you'll agree, both of you was the point-by-point deconstruction of uh, the Pittsburgh Tribune review comparison of baseball fandom to superbike racing, (laughs) a column that included the line uh, by the Pittsburgh Tribune review writer, when one of my favorite racers, Australian Troy Bayless, crashed at 170 miles per hour last year, grinding off one of his pinky fingers, I didn't scream at him for incompetence. (laughs) I cannot, I cannot read that column without just like bursting out laughing. Um, And Mike Scher on the classical, you wrote that that was the most fun you had ever had writing something and it's the most i think i've ever laughed at reading anything so thank you yeah that that was that it's still to this day is my favorite experience of writing for that site was that someone sending me that and going oh my god what is this but don't you think the internet form sorry to hijack the afterworlds of the point by point review it's almost never done right it gets wearying and i wish you were extremely your site was extremely influential Maybe more to ill than good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, maybe. I, uh, we did that just because we didn't know how else to do it. And you were inventing the internet back <laughs> then. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. We're, we weren't the first people to do that, were we? I mean, I feel like that was being done elsewhere. I, maybe I just read through to the end of your articles more than anyone <laughs> else's. I helped think, popularize yeah. it. I don't think you yeah. were the first, but yeah. you were you were a popularizer. But then oh. you get into the situation where, oh, I've I've committed to this form. I'm going to have some lame comebacks on certain lines. That's you the, the yeah. key with it. As I remember uh, from from doing it, is that you can't refute every crazy thing. You have to like you you have to pace yourself. If you interrupt the original article every every line, you're gonna both get annoying, and also you'll the people who are reading the original article need to follow the thread of the original article in order to know how you're arguing against it. Anyway, this is good. <laughs> anyway, superbikes, superbikes. It was awesome. Superbikes. Uh, Mike Pasca, what is your superbike? So Courtney Wynn has inspired me, especially her podcast, No Challenges Remaining. And I believe with that, with the existence of that podcast, every phrase associated with a sport has now been appropriated for either a blog or a website. Now, Fire Joe Morgan was something that you invented, but most blogs 
or whatever versions of blogs we're talking about now, most podcasts about sports are named after a phrase associated with the sport. Now, what you don't want to do in naming a podcast or in naming a blog is to go top level. It's very analogous to if you're naming a cover band, okay? So a bad David Bowie cover band would be called Changes or something, just naming it after a song or Ziggy Stardust, you know, just naming it after an album. But if you could name it after a lyric within a pop song like The Leper Messiahs. Now that's the name for a David (laughs) Bowie cover band. So what I want to do now is if I can solicit from you guys, just give me a tertiary phrase associated with the sport and I will put it through the Google machine and we'll see if a blog or a podcast exists echoing that phrase. Some that I've thought of are side out and rotate. Is that a volleyball blog five tool player that has to be a blog somewhere three step drop is three step or five step drop does that exist what you got one off top of your head and you should also check seven step drop maybe they have long (laughs) long form journalism (laughs) what about Uh, what about fantastic golf shot oh (laughs) good right I, i will google that one um how about uh how about runners at the corners runners at the corners Ducks on the pond. Ducks on the pond. Yeah. All right. All right. Googling it. In fact, runners at the corners dot wordpress dot com. Runners at the corners. Nathan's baseball blog. The three step drop is a blog. The five step drop is a portion of a blog, including an ESPN writer who sometimes does five bullet points, calling it the five step drop. I did not, however, find a blog or a podcast for side out and rotate. So that could be either, I'm giving that to you, volleyball, potential volleyball bloggers of the world, or it could be a subset on the volley blog, which is something I think that doesn't exist that needs to exist. For the record, my friend, uh, I have a friend named Scott who was in a Steve Miller cover band called the Midnight Tokers. And I was like, that's a pretty good name. You know why you don't want to go too deep with the Steve Miller right. cover band? Because I think Steve Miller fans would not even <laughs> you want, appreciate you that. Want them, you want fans to, to get it right away. Yes. But it's also not called The Jokers right. or whatever. Midnight Tokers is a one level better than The Jokers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, all right, Mike Sure. what is your super bike? My super bike is a fish-in-the-barrel style super bike. Um, the Major League Baseball All-Star Game, which takes place tomorrow, is a gigantic mess, and everyone knows it, and no one's doing anything about it, and it drives me crazy. It's an exhibition game, but it counts for the World Series, but the fans vote, and then they vote again for some reason, and there has to be one guy from each team, and then after the team is announced, a bunch of players beg off because they don't want to play or they have injuries, and a whole bunch of other guys end up going, including, this year, 60% of the guys who were in the final fan vote thing are on the team. Now, any exhibition game is going to be problematic. Any selection process is going to leave a bunch of snubs and problems in its wake. But the Major League Baseball makes it so much harder than it has to be. Why does one guy have to make it from every team? I don't think that Phillies fans would not watch the All-Star game if Jonathan Papelbon weren't available to get two outs in the sixth inning of a meaningless, essentially meaningless exhibition game. Or will, because Jonathan Papelbon is is in there. They will not be tuning in. They're not going to be like, well, I'm now... They don't tune in to Jonathan (laughs) Papelbon actually pitching for the Phillies. I'm only watching this if Papelbon gets in the game. (laughs) Clayton Kershaw wasn't chosen for the team. Max Scherzer and Sonny Gray, who would be a legitimate choice to be the starting pitching matchup, won't even play because they pitched on Sunday. It's such a nightmare. There's so many amazing stars, young stars in baseball right now. Maybe at any point in the last couple decades, there has to be a better way to showcase them 
than this. I think literally just putting Bryce Harper and Manny Machado on a lazy Susan in center field and playing their highlights on the Jumbotron would be a better way to showcase the young stars than this. And I would like to implore Major League Baseball to completely rethink All-Star Week, All-Star Game, All-Star whatever you want to call it. And I I guess ideally adopt my lazy Susan idea because now that I say it out loud, it sounds kind of awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say that you uh, are saying there should be change but weren't... uh you know, submitting a proposal. But now I stand corrected. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Josh, what's your super bike? (laughs) So sometimes uh, it's fun just to be totally crazed and irrational. We like to to be smart. We like to be rational about our sports fandom here on the show. But I'm a fan of the New York Mets. I don't like to talk about it that much. It's not something I'm particularly proud of. (laughs) It's not something I've particularly embraced over the last decade. And I have to say that um, just kind of losing touch with your baseball team, it's a great way to save time. I would encourage encourage it. It's my number one life-hacking move. But the Mets have been better this year. They've got a bunch of really good young pitchers. Um, I'm not going to... I don't buy that it's like a really downtrodden, long-suffering franchise any more than any other franchise. The Mets fans like to talk about how bad they have it. It's not really that bad. But here's the one exception. Um... The Mets lie about how injured their players are mm-hmm. on a systematic level that I find, even as somebody who's like doesn't care as much about the team as I used to, I find it incredibly aggravating and and horrible. Uh, Jared Diamond of the Wall Street Journal put together a fantastic chart, which on on the uh, column on the left, it's the name of the player. Then the next column is diagnosis and accompanying quote from management. Then the last column is actual severity of injury. So let me run through through some of these. Zach Wheeler, diagnosed with elbow tendinitis. GM Sandy Alderson. We don't expect it's going to be a major issue. Actual severity of injury. Mets announced Wheeler has torn ulnar collateral ligament, needs season-ending Tommy John surgery. David Wright, diagnosed with hamstring strain. Two weeks would be great. Oh. Diagnosed with spinal stenosis. Timetable for return remains unknown. Yeah. Rafael Montero, diagnosed with rotator cuff inflammation. We don't expect this to be serious. Timetable for return remains unknown. Daniel Murphy goes on deal with quad strain. It's not real serious. Missed 22 games. Travis Diarno, diagnosed with hyperextended elbow. We'll probably have him tomorrow if we need him. June 23rd, goes on disabled list. Timetable unknown. Michael Kadire, diagnosed with knee injury. The news is finally some good news. A bright spot. The next day. We need to certainly revisit it tomorrow. (laughs) Uh, The latest, Stephen Matz, Mike Uh, Pesca. uh, This guy is a bright, shining star, youngster from Long Island. Tweaked a lot. Tweaked a lot. It was just a little tight. Once I got out there, it was feeling good. Terry Collins, manager, says, after his debut, he's a little stiffer than we liked. He's now on the disabled list, tore his lat, got a platelet-rich plasma injection, which my understanding was that's the kind of thing that Kobe Bryant goes to Germany to have done (laughs) furtively. Um, It feels good sometimes to just have a totally, I don't even know if it's irrational, to just totally hate your team. Um, Every surgery and every sport is successful. And they never say, oh, this guy, you know, this is a a lot, you know, this one's going to be really bad. But I still feel like even based on that baseline, the Mets are just liars. Yep. (laughs) 
I'll give you um, another one. I'll give you another one. You ready? Stupid. <laughs> and I hate them. I'll give you another one. Wilpon finances. Nah, not b- barely affected by Madoff. Actually, <laughs> haven't signed a hitter in six years. That's a great point. God, what a f- annoying franchise. What a horrible, horrible franchise. Anything that you want to complain about with the Red Sox? Anyone? Anyone on the on the call? You can't complain about the Red Sox because if you do, everyone yells at you and says, you guys have won three World Series in 10 years, which is 100% true. Mm-hmm. But I also always point out, you're always allowed to complain about your favorite baseball team. It doesn't matter. Cardinals fans can complain about the Cardinals. Giants fans can complain about the Giants. That's part of being a fan is you get to complain no matter what. So I, I don't fully think Cardinals su- fans can complain about the Cardinals. <laughs> uh, I think that would be can. an exception. I think Actually, they can. the Houston Astros records show that they can complain about. <laughs> we found that. Deep, All right, deep in, the, love- in the Astros home server. Yes. <laughs> We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen in iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hangup and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangup and listen. Today's show is produced by Zach Dinerstein. Our intern is Emma Zayner. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Thanks to Mike Schur for filling in today and subscribe to his podcast, the podcast, the quarterly podcast with Joe Poznanski and Mike Schur. Uh, Hang up and listen. As part of the Panoply Network, check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.